This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down FedEx. FedEx has more direct impact on the U.S. economy than 99.9% of U.S. businesses. And yes, that's an actual statistic from Dun & Bradstreet. It was a business started in 1973 with the famous Fred Smith as his planes delivered 186 packages to 25 cities. Today, that number has jumped quite a bit. FedEx moves about 15 million packages a day all over the world. And Memphis remains the center of the FedEx network. Their overnight hub can handle close to 500,000 packages per hour. To break down FedEx, I'm joined by Staley Cates, Vice Chairman of Southeastern Asset Management and Memphis Local. We cover the business of FedEx and how this network operates. In the coming years, FedEx will integrate their express and ground networks. Now, if you've ever received two packages from two separate FedEx drivers within the same afternoon, it traces back to this network separation. The express segment was anything that was time sensitive. And remember, FedEx pioneered the idea of overnight delivery in the 70s. Meanwhile, ground was anything that was less time sensitive and more comparable to a UPS. So we talk about that integration along with the history of this business and what has kept the stock from truly breaking out or trading on a comparable valuation to something like UPS. If you find yourself wanting to learn more about FedEx's founder, make sure to check out our Founders Podcast, episode 151 on Fred Smith. It's a story about surviving before it was a story about thriving. And Fred Smith was a special entrepreneur in the history of US entrepreneurs. Now, please enjoy this episode on FedEx. All right, Staley, as a Memphian, you obviously live with FedEx every day. But can you share a bit more about your relationship to the business and to the stock? Yeah, it's interesting that we go so far back with FedEx that people have asked us many times, and it's a logical question, is that how it hit our radar? Is that part of the biologic and all that? And what's interesting is when we bought the stock, which would have been in the 80s, we did not know them at all. And our firm was tiny. I was definitely no one as an analyst. And so it was really a process of getting to know them over the many years of owning the stock. I think consumers are familiar with the business just from seeing packages dropped off at their doorstep. But I think that really underappreciates what the business is overall. So maybe you could just try to capture how you think about this business from a broader sense in terms of what FedEx is doing. The most interesting thing on that consumer perception is how I think it leads to the investor misperception, meaning if you ask most people on the street, what are your knee-jerk impressions of FedEx as a company and as a product? 
it's so interesting that it's what lines up with what we all as analysts would think of as the, quote, express business, which is Fred Smith's paper at Yale, the incredible brand marketing, the sports marketing, the funny ads, the great and famous IT thing about the information about the package is as important as the package, buying Flying Tiger, all that stuff. It's so interesting that all the famous stuff was in the express segment. As a business, that segment has really just gotten worse and worse and tougher and tougher. And in the meantime, it's all about ground and freight, as you know, and we'll talk about this too, but it's the U.S. trucking thing that matters the most as a business, but that is mostly unseen. So, of course, with the pandemic, we all saw that more and more with everything getting shipped to our door. But before the pandemic, I think people were oblivious to really most of the value creation at this company is B2B ground. It's warehouse to warehouse. So the consumer perception while valid about Express, really doesn't have a lot to do with the investor case. Yeah, I think that's well said. Can you talk a little bit about how those segments make up FedEx in terms of weightings or however else you would think about it, how they compare and contrast and what makes one segment good versus the other? I guess the logical place to start is operating income as a percentage of the whole company. And then how we think about it would be more value per share within the company. But what's interesting of the very rough consensus operating income estimates, Express right now is running on only about 20% of company total, which is surprising to people. And as a sidebar, that's because the Express business is only doing about a 2% operating margin. So we'll also talk about that later. Ground is by far the most important profit contributor with more than half. And then freight is the next most valuable part. That's the LTL business as opposed to ground being the larger truck fleet. As a percentage of value, we would still have similar numbers because Express is depressed in terms of its profits, even though it's not worth a huge multiple. That's worth maybe a fourth of the whole thing. And ground would be a little more than half of the whole thing with freight being the rest. And as you know, but a lot of listeners may not, we're using segment terms that are about to be collapsed as they go into one FedEx. But for talking about it, this is much easier to still use the segments. I think about Express as the high-speed overnight delivery, whereas ground is involving the trucks. Are there any other differences? There's obviously something when it comes to the operating income and the margin now in the businesses. But is there anything else that you think goes into the difference between the historical Express business and the ground business today? Yeah, I think it'd be the macro overlay for all the above. So part of the reason I mentioned we admire so much what Express is and how they built it and doing the best they can on it. But it's been the biggest victim of all this macro, terrible stuff that goes on in the world. So it starts with free trade. You used to have this growth matrix if you were doing the work on the company where you'd say, okay, well, GDP will grow at X. And since trade will always grow a little bit better than X, here's our starting growth rate. And I think very sadly for the whole world, that's reversed. And so now free trade has a tough outlook. I think the, that growth tailwind is now a headwind. So all these macro things, oil price going crazy all over the place, even with fuel surcharges, high fuel price is going to put more stuff on boats and just still going to have an impact. Whereas the macro seems to be nothing but a harm to the express business, it's actually been a positive for the U.S. ground business in terms of both e-commerce penetration, and we'll talk about the difference there in B2B and B2C, but overall that's positive. And then just the market structure, if you're doing a Porter model analysis on this, the 
you've got a very powerful duopoly with great, great pricing power, and it's less vulnerable to some of this macro international stuff. Yeah, I think that sets the table really nicely where we are today. Let's reverse back to the beginning. One of the great entrepreneurs of our time, Fred Smith, starting FedEx. Can you talk a bit about his story and what he saw as the opportunity that wasn't being filled in the market by anyone else, mainly UPS at the time? And anything that you have in terms of your experience with him over the years, obviously, looking at this name in the 80s was a little after he had already launched the business. But it'll be great to get your perspective on Fred and his DNA that he's really instilled in this business. This could be a separate podcast, (laughs) and I would not do it proper justice. There should be a legendary Fred Smith podcast. But I mean, this starts with most business experts, if you ask them for a VC startup entrepreneur hall of fame, and then you separately ask them for a master strategist, giant company with half a billion employees hall of fame, these would rarely overlap. Most people that are the startup hall of fame are not going to run a company this ginormous. So the first thing is just, it's amazing that he has built and done all this. The second thing is, this was the phases in which we got to know him and got to know the company. There was this manic importance of getting to all parts of world GDP. And so that included some geographic acquisitions that were incredibly interesting and getting to China early. And some of the stuff that was really risky in building this air network, the reason we got a shot at first was... They were hemorrhaging money in Europe. And so just as an analyst, you'd say, well, I'm not going to put a multiple on this huge loss. Either they'll stop the loss because they'll fix it or they'll just quit this pain or maybe somebody will buy this U.S. network or whatever. That's why we originally had the shot. Well, then as that did get corrected, then he as master strategist basically got to a point, this is vastly oversimplifying, but it's basically like we can't fight UPS with just one arm. They are bundling air and ground. We have no ground. And that's when he did what I would argue is the most important thing in the history of the company, which is, again, not the soundbite stuff, but it's when he bought Caliber, which is RPS, which is now ground. That was $2.5 billion. That's, what, 25 to 30 years ago of something we now think is worth $70 billion. But more importantly, this company would be screwed without that, obviously, if they didn't have the ground business. And that was really how that started. So that gets to his the strategy and the acquisitions and the usually acquisitions don't work in the capital allocation column. But that clearly did, as did their LTL freight acquisitions. So he gets all this credit. I think most people wouldn't say, oh, Fred Smith, master acquirer of trucking businesses. But that added more value to us on the math of today's NAV than the Express, again, because of macro stuff, not because they did anything wrong. Another really notable thing, and you would know this from your own coverage, is his time horizon is so long that it's often been off-putting to the sell side. So it might be an acquisition or purchasing a plane or new route that might have a really long payoff with a very high return. But you might not see that for three or even five years, and Wall Street hates that stuff. And that also had to do with, and we'll also talk about this later on capital allocation, but for a long time, they would not buy in stock. That was an admission of failure. They'd rather do these other things to build the business. That is an incredibly important change now as far as where they are on shareholder return. But And he's always been so well-vested. He's been a huge owner that did not sell much, and it shows. Yeah, he has quite the iconic history. And I think your point in terms of 
capital allocation, particularly on some of these assets in transportation, they're incredibly hard to frame in your own brain because they could be 40 plus year assets. So to your point, if the payback period is three to five years, that might feel extreme relative to what you're seeing in some of the other industries. But you can sweat those assets for incredibly long periods of time. And if you're paid back in that short period of time, it's all gravy from there. I want to talk a little bit about the different secular trends that have taken place while FedEx has been in business, and particularly over the past few decades. The main one you already referenced in terms of how e-commerce has affected the business. I think when I first started looking at transportation, I thought, oh, obvious tailwind for a FedEx and a UPS. They're going to deliver more packages to doorsteps. That seems like it would be great, but not necessarily the case. Much more nuanced than that. So maybe just discuss a little bit in terms of e-commerce, how you've thought about that trend for FedEx, the industry as a whole, and anything else that you would add into that. Well, on that topic, I think I've made every mistake possible and too numerous to recall because I've started that out with an oversimplified tailwind of what this volume will do. This starts with probably the most important metric for that company to the people that work there is last mile route density. That is probably the phrase they'd use the most that their customers might hear the least, but it's everything about how many packages are there per stop. So if it's 50-ish when you're going door-to-door, warehouse-to-warehouse for B2B, it's just a little over one in a good case for a consumer going to any of our residential neighborhoods. And that is this incredibly different cost profile way to see package and a B2B package. And we, I had really screwed that up as far as appreciating the magnitude of that. I think the best way to see it is if you go back 10 years and if you were just looking at the FedEx ground segment at that point, nothing looked prettier than that picture. The margins were high teens, return on assets and capital just off the charts, organic revenue, you had, you'd grow with nominal GDP plus taking share from UPS, just huge organic growth. Everything looked perfect. And then this mixed thing did kick in. And so ground margins started compressing. That's to me, the main reason the stock has been cheap is right at the moment when everybody said, oh, this is more value in ground than express. That's when these ground margins got started to just drop and drop and drop. And then we hit the pandemic. And of course, all this accelerated. So the first thing is margin mix is just a huge deal that has been the dominant story within their numbers for the last decade. Then you've got the wild card of Amazon, where that led to several things. I mean, probably the most important is that, and this gets back to the Fred Smith long-term thinking, but this pushed Amazon over to UPS. And FedEx basically, again, oversimplifying, but basically took a position of that is a low margin, tough, huge customer, and we can fill our capacity in more profitable ways and we just don't want it. And that was one of the short-term things they took some flack for, but probably a really good long-term strategic decision that linked UPS and Amazon very tightly. And then it can let everybody else over to FedEx, Team FedEx. As a sidebar, I think it's always been interesting. People will say, well, here comes Amazon as number three, even though it's really all about their own stuff. But we'd have a lot of hedge fundy questions about, so why don't Amazon just buy FedEx? Well, that gets into a channel conflict that makes my brain explode. This is me talking, not the company, but all the FedEx customers hate Amazon extensionally, not all of them, but a lot of them. So to think that Amazon could have all these hard assets, help their own business, and then keep all these competitors paying them revenues, that's really not practical. 
But we are at this inflection point. I think, having said all that, I think we're in an inflection point on ground. This year, I mean, we're in the third fiscal quarter. They have finally turned that margin back around. And then the radical shift of B2B to B2C within ground, that is now slowing and stabilizing. And so we think we're finally teed up after about a decade of that margin pain. How much did the margin decline? You mentioned high teens before. Where did we get to in terms of trough? Even rough ballpark numbers are helpful. Roughly about seven. So roughly an 18 or a 19 for a few years running, getting as low as a seven-ish. Their latest analyst meeting target type stuff is basically 11 or 12 for now. I mean, as a quote, normalized number, we think that can get incrementally better over time. It's a heavily variable cost business, not a fixed cost business. So there's only so much margin they're going to get in any given year, but it should creep back up. It will not get back to the high teens, but I don't know why it would not go back to the mid teens if they keep growing revenue well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think UPS today, 10 or 11% of their revenue is coming from Amazon. So a very concentrated exposure to that business. How else do you think about differentiating those two in this duopoly that they currently operate in? This is our internal guesswork. Some stuff is just passing on information when we get answers from the company. This is not because they're just not going to talk about it much, but we would not think that the delivery of Amazon stuff is very profitable for a lot of obvious reasons, but the return stuff different. If stuff gets batched through the UPS store, there's probably a decent margin on returns, but if I'm them, I would be sweating what happens when Amazon decides they want that too. And you see various retail tests that Amazon runs. I'm not loving that if I'm the UPS store. So, I mean, I think returns are maybe an issue there. And then on this really big issue of, are they going to be some third competitor or not? Is this going to be what AWS is in bandwidth? And we just don't see how it is because for one thing right now, it just doesn't make any sense for them to extend into that third-party deal compared to trying to get their own stuff right, which is really what they're doing now. And then you've got some DOJ stuff going on now where the government's going after them for this and saying you can't force your third-party players in your universe to use your shipping. This is going to take however many years to play out. But I mean, if the legal thing went against Amazon on that, then it's just defined that they're not going to be a third competitor. So They'll just always be a worry point. Will they do something crazy that disrupts? Because it definitely ticks them off that they can't stop the duopoly raising prices and all the rest of it. So, I mean, they're always a wild card that you would never take for granted. But as of now, that's not a huge worry point. And there's another wild card, which we haven't mentioned yet, the U.S. Postal Service. It's tough to really decide whether they're a net positive or a net negative. We can say that they've largely been subsidizing a large amount of e-commerce growth, eventually paid by us taxpayers, I suppose. But how do you think about the Postal Service and their role in the overall e-commerce system? Well, you framed it very well. I mean, it is a massively subsidized thing. It's thing when you see their financials as they appear at congressional hearings and all that, then the numbers are just nightmarish and don't seem to get fixed. The main direct thing for FedEx is, you know, if you look up in the K, they're a huge customer of the express segment. They're the middle mile for all that. If people are doing priority U.S. Postal Service packages and stuff, it's coming through that middle hall with FedEx. That may or may not change, but that's where the immediate math is for them. To me, on the longer term thing, you've summed it up well of where it is. I just think that's a long-term option if either they 
quit these levels of subsidies, if they had to carry more of their own freight, that's a bad pun for this industry we're talking about. But if they did, they're going to have to charge more. I think we touched a little bit on the ground segment, where margins have gone, why there might be some upside there. When you frame that with your own analysis of e-commerce in the system, we definitely had some what feels like pull forward or acceleration of the e-commerce trend as a percentage of the overall market during COVID. What gives you confidence that they have seen a bottoming out in terms of the amount of business that's done B2C or route density or anything else that would allow for that inflection to happen? And how does that pair with the overall e-commerce penetration and where that can eventually get to where we are today? Well, it start between five and 10 years ago, those numbers would have looked like 75 or 80% of ground was B2B and the other 20 to 25 was consumer. So then as you chart that against the overall e-commerce penetration, that number moved from low to mid-teens up to the low 20s now. I think they said 22% on their last call. So the answer to your question is we would start with the 22 seems to have stabilized. I mean, that should march forward, but not like the pandemic of a leap from teens into 20s. So we would just say, pick your number on the 22% e-commerce overall number, how that goes up, and then scale that against B2C, B2B, which again, FedEx does report that number. And you can see that being about 50-50 now. It'll still probably go against them a bit as the 22 goes up, but it shouldn't be as hard as it's been for the last five. We've talked a lot about costs, margins, but not so much about top line and price. When you're thinking about revenue for transportation businesses, it is one of the truly simplest models of volume times price. Actually, forecasting those is very difficult, but it's a fairly simple model in terms of the two variables that go into it. Maybe we can start out just talking about price. How has price been enforced in terms of between UPS and FedEx? How have they been able to do that over time? What is the outlook there? And can they offset more of the margin just by leaning on price in the future versus what they've done historically? Recently, if they are doing six and seven over the last couple of years, that's incredibly healthy and holding their ground at the very least against CPI. So who knows? I mean, if the markets are looking for 4% CPI, we're not going to model more than five to be conservative, but I think it's safe to say four to five. And then in the ground business, that's always been as I mentioned, ever since they bought Caliber, it's been picking up share from UPS. That just law large numbers also has to slow a little bit. But UPS is still a lot bigger. So I think it'd be safe to say a little bit of growth on top of GDP units on ground for that. And then jumping over to the other trucking part, which is freight, which is LTL. They have been so disciplined on price. They've taken such yield increases there that the units are actually pretty weak. But if you're doing that long-term expected growth matrix, I think it's fair to say that should be GDP slash industry and maybe then a little bit also because yellow just went under, still unclear who's going to take yellow's capacity. But that should be a little bit better than GDP on units. And then it's been incredibly strong on yield. And then I guess one other thing hopping back to ground is factoring in the mix thing. So if to the extent B2C keeps growing, that's got to be a little bit of a, maybe not at the, on the unit and price part, but on your margin part, take a little ding for that. For international, for express, where it is more about world trade and supply chains and airplanes, and that's just a tougher deal. Again, we're going to say that units are 
closer to flat than they are world GDP unit growth. The yield long-term could be okay like CPI, but right now it's not because right now they're giving up the surcharges that they attacked on in the pandemic. So with all that flight capacity sidelined in the pandemic, it led to shortages of capacity that let FedEx put on these extra surcharges that were a big number. I mean, they were pushing a billion dollars probably in total at the peak, and that's being given back. So short-term, that's part of the reason FedEx is out of favor. If you look at DHL as a comp, that's part of DHL's low PE has given some of that back. So that's not as good. It's been a while since I looked at the industry, but I do remember the cross-border e-commerce and just cross-border business for DHL, UPS, FedEx were incredible because there was really limited competition when it came to that market. You might be able to build a domestic player, but to build something with truly the global footprint that those three operators had allowed them for to get high teens margins at the time. So it's interesting to hear that that has somewhat flattened and for obvious reasons. I want to go back to the freight business quickly. In the LTL segment, where have those margins gone over time? I think it's important to differentiate. We've talked about truckload, traditional TL freight here, which is a lower margin business. Some LTL players have been able to get margins above 10% with Old Dominion, well north of that. How has FedEx been able to trend in that business segment? It's been an incredible amount of long-term progress. We talked about, and you made comments about what the acquisitions might look like. This thing was built on buying American and Watkins especially, and it took years. I would not remember how many after the acquisitions, but to get that out of single digit margin territory, well, now they've just continued to go at it, especially on yield. 10 years ago, I think observers would have said they are maybe part of the LTL pricing problem because it's more about bundling it with express and ground. And so I don't think anybody would have said they're a great aggressive pricer at that point. But then they got religion on that over the last decade. And so as you've seen pricing be probably the best of any of their three segments, you've seen the margins come with it. So they're at an incredible 20% margin right now. Even in this particular year where it's down comparisons, it's still over 20. You're exactly right. Gold Dominion is the gold standard as far as all the performance measures, which certainly shows up in its value as a sidebar. FedEx is just maintaining the, the yield while giving up some of the volume while keeping the margin, which has been an incredible margin progression. Yeah, that is quite impressive. I did not realize that it had gotten to that level. So when you step back from the business, you look at the opportunity set that they have and where capital should be going next and where capital is going next in terms of the investment opportunities. How do you frame that? How does the business think about this in terms of where the dollars are going to be spent in the future and setting up the business best for future success? It's a great time to ask that question because I think it's so trite and overhyped to say we're at an inflection point. So I'm going to say, I think we're at an inflection point. I can't help it. Because to your point, if you just go segment by segment within Express for the longest time, it was covering more parts of GDP or getting certain rights, especially importantly, refleeting the airplanes. All that stuff is done. So they have really good disclosure on the makeup of their CapEx, and they show you what the airplane CapEx been a bubble for a while, but the big growth in that has been. They now have a younger fleet age than UPS, which is interesting on the airplanes. 
So that's about to be done. And they tell you that's going back to a billion dollars on that spending of a maintenance level. So on Express, it's almost like as the refleeting finishes, there's nothing left to do there, really, other than be at DNA. And then at ground, you had a huge asset explosion. Like over this 10 years where we talked about the margin going down, the revenues were exploding because, yes, the margins were being hurt by e-commerce and B2C. But it made the assets and the revenues explode, not in a great return way. But nonetheless, all that bulge is also coming to a close. So they also talk about the ground segment CapEx moderating and say that gets back to call it DNA as a proxy, leaving you with freight, which is they're not going to be allowed to buy much more freight. They're the number one leader by far. It's interesting to look at Old Dominion's market cap, even though they're a distant number two to FedEx LTL, but they're not going to buy anything there. That just leads to this, it's finally time for shareholder return. So the yield is only a couple of percent, even though the growth rate on that is good. But for a very recent part of the multi-decade period we've covered it, they are seriously in the share repurchase business now. So that's running at about a three and a half to 4% a year buyback pace on top of the dividend. And that's pretty meaningful, especially now when you are in this final refleeting part. So the key thing is if you looked out two to three years and CapEx really does go to something like DNA, which by the way, that was always what was knocked on this company. As you know, you've known this comparison forever. People would say, oh, there's no quality of earnings at FedEx, meaning they didn't convert all their cash flow into free cash flow to equal EPS. That's finally on the horizon. That should finally happen in two to three years. And that would leave an even more available money for a higher dividend and more share repurchase. But for now, while the CapEx is still larger than the DNA, long-winded way to say that's pretty much just going to the dividends and the share repurchase. What you see is step-downs in the refleeting of the planes. Are there any type of sortation facilities or anything happening within the network that is going to require material CapEx spend and what else might fall into that bucket in the future that you think about or you have your eyes on? Because I agree, it has been this incredibly hot topic when it comes especially to UPS versus FedEx as an investor debate. Are there anything else that is top of mind for you in terms of watching that could fall into the CapEx category in the future? The answer to that actually segues into one of their big news flashes over the last year or so is this one FedEx, the consolidation of these three segments that we keep talking about now into this one operating entity other than freight. Freight is the one thing that would stay off to the side. But as they do merge this, it really goes the other way because they just ran these independently for so long. And it was really in the name of speed and service. They didn't want to compromise that. But all of it has grown so much and that has gone on for so long that there really is just some basic redundancy now. So there are way more chances now for the freight part to carry for ground. And there are way more times when you don't need an express truck in the same neighborhood as a ground truck. So to your question, if anything, it's now rationalizing capacity instead of still adding to it. You can see the breakneck ad when the ground assets over the last decade have done something like going from 8 billion-ish to 30 two or three billion-ish now. I mean, it's then that order of magnitude. So if anything, it's time to take a breather, pause, even pay to close some of that down. They've talked about some of the cost of downsizing, but with a very good payback. So long-winded way to say, I think we're going the other direction on that instead of where does it expand? 
And I'll bring up what might be a sensitive topic for an investor. FedEx years ago purchased TNT as a large acquisition abroad. And TNT was going to be a nice piece to add into their network. But the integration faced a lot of challenges in terms of taking that one network and implanting it into the FedEx network. When you take that history and now apply it to what they're trying to do with one FedEx in the US, has the management team talked at all about maybe lessons that they've learned from that that they can apply to avoid any of those mishaps or operational issues when it comes to integration? That's a great question because as you're right, that has not been the textbook great case study of acquisition. And some of that is they had this huge cyber attack and you could argue, is it their fault for not doing the diligence or addressing it? Or is it totally not their fault because they were targeted? Whatever reasons, all stuff and then French airport rules, you name it, they had it. Now, what's interesting about that one is that the synergies on day one that they advertised were enormous compared to the price. So I think they said something like 750 million of synergies on a sub $5 billion price, even though there are $7 billion of revenues there. So that was such a fat pitch that even a mess for the first few years of integration, that alone was still there all the time. And then on top of that, what they would talk less about, because nobody wants to talk much about tax if you're going to lower it to flag it for all governments. But a Netherlands domicile also helps if you look through some of the foreign tax rate stuff, and that wasn't in the synergy number. They are finally getting to a point this year where actually it's hard to get the exact numbers, of course, on synergies at this point. But this is the year that TNT has finally been consolidated. I mentioned the headwind of some of the express surcharges after the pandemic, but against that, they have finally gotten some of these synergies. So on TNT, first, just on that, I think it's fair to say that finally is paying off. And then even with the lag, though, I don't think they'd regret doing it. I think they would regret some of the tactical stuff on how that got done. And then on the part of your question about lessons learned there, I think just because it's more putting, it's getting more stuff onto the ground network in Europe. But some of that is so Europe specific, like the truck sizes are different and all the different country to country rules that you're trying to simplify. I'm not sure how analogous that ends up being. But there may be benefits there that I'm not seeing or aware of, but I'm not sure there's a lot directly applicable. It's probably better if there's not much that's directly applicable. If it's a completely different situation, it might make for a completely different integration process. But I agree, it felt a situation where one thing after the next was happening in terms of bad events and something like the cyber attack, to your point. There could have been maybe more diligence done, but you look at the other major transportation companies that were hit, like Maersk, you could point the finger at a lot of different companies when it comes to who was impacted and affected there. I guess the other piece of the consolidation is what that could do to the overall margin profile. So I think we've talked a lot about these businesses separately in different segments, but when you consolidate everything together, what does it look like for FedEx and maybe a quick rundown of the income statement in terms of how you would frame it from a revenue margin perspective and how you would think about those two things trending in the future? Our best guess at how to put that together is we take express and ground and mash them together. And then we do the same for UPS, domestic and international, and take a look at that. And to your point implied there, it's telling, it does show the opportunity. Because if you mash those things together with UPS, 
that operating margin has been really pretty steady around 14%. And if you match together express and ground for FDX, it never really gets to a double digit. It's eight to nine. If you use that to frame these drive savings, drive is the acronym for the cost stuff that we've talked about that they're doing. They talk about that as a total number of $4 billion. That's a little less than five percentage points. And that does make sense, i.e., if they got the drive numbers, if they got all that to the bottom line, which I'm not saying they will, but if they did, that would put them in that ballpark of putting it together with the UPS segments combined the same way. And then on the consolidated math, they also, in all the analyst stuff about this program and the long-term goals, they're basically talking about $100 billion of revenues, total company, and that's against 85 now getting to a company-wide 10%, which also looks reasonable on whether you roll up the segments or whether you just look at a UPS or whatever. And that would get you to $30 of earnings power versus the next 12 months, probably going to be 20 bucks. And that's a big part of why we think it stocks cheap at around 250. But all that does seem to ring true, makes sense. Thinking about that 500 basis points or slightly less than 500 basis points of margin difference from a UPS, What are the key buckets that that would fall into? And I'll point out labor. There is a difference in terms of UPS labor with the Teamsters recently going through what always seems to happen every five years, which is a tumultuous, intense negotiation, but ultimately getting a deal done with some very large increases in terms of the wage inflation. How does that impact FedEx and how does that play into that margin profile overall? First off on the $4 billion, they put that into three roughly equal buckets. Roughly a third of that was going to be in ground, roughly a third in flight, and roughly a third in just back office, G&A, procurement, stuff like that, which really didn't have to do as much with one segment carrying freight for another. That's how they lined out the numbers, and they gave pretty specific stuff on the categories within air and ground and corporate or back office. But you're right. The labor is a very important point, and you're right. UPS has said this is a roughly 3.3% increase in labor, but it's going to hit really hard on the front end. And so it has ramifications both for how people are believing or not believing what UPS is going to earn next year, and that matters on relative peer comparison. But that umbrella remains there for FedEx to be lower cost on both ground and freight. Thinking about FedEx and who is leading the business into this next chapter with some of these changes, Fred stepped down in 2022, but there has also been many changes in terms of that leadership team and who's managing the business. So can you talk a little bit about that and who's in charge now, who's overseeing this and how you think about the team that's ultimately in charge of leading the next phase and the potential inflection point? Yeah, it's a very important point because they had one of the most stable executive committees that we've seen on a lot of stuff we follow. And you're right. I mean, this is major chairs of change. So Fred remains executive chairman and in a very active way. So, I mean, I still think of him as full-time, even though he is not the CEO for the first time ever. Raj Subramaniam is CEO. He's been at FedEx for 30 years. He's been both marketing and ops. He's been all over the world. He entered this job at just an unbelievably interesting time. Within a couple of months, 
activist D.E. Shaw shows up, and that was their, quote, activist episode of the last couple of years. And Shaw got a few directors, now two directors. So first, Raj has that as his welcome to the CEO thing. And then he has what's now this famous guidance cut his first summer in the job. And I say now famous because at the time, he actually caught flack for that because he was ringing an economic bell that others weren't yet. And then, of course, now everyone is thinking about are we in a recession or not and what's coming or not. So, I mean, if anything, the good FedEx dashboard just rang the bell early. But that led to an air pocket in the stock, and he's also dealt with that. But he's handled it all beautifully, kept his head down, then put in the drive and the one FedEx, and here we go, reducing costs. And then that leads to the CFO change, which is Mike Lenz was CFO for the last few years. And now it's John Dietrich. And the most interesting thing about him is he had not been a CFO or even an accountant in his previous life. So he comes most recently from Atlas, where he was CEO, where they sold the private equity. He really is more of an operator. Before that, he had been a general counsel. But he's bringing skills that are really about attacking these costs to go with what Raj is tasked with in the, in the shortest term possible. It makes sense to us, and especially on the, we're wildly enthused about share repurchase at this price at 250 when we think it's worth 400. So that part is taken care of, if you will, on the financial side, and it really is just about the execution. And the Treasury Department at FedEx has always been fantastic. That gives you also confidence about not having a traditional CFO, if you will, in that seat. So we're enthused by this team. In terms of the business itself, where it can go some of the things that it's looking to do. I think you mentioned a good point earlier in terms of Amazon for customers. If they are going to be your main competitor in terms of selling the same thing that you're selling, it's hard to make them the dependent one who warehouses your inventory, ships your inventory, and relying on them 100%. I think it's very easy to see the conflict of interest there. When it comes to logistics operations and ingraining more into businesses' logistics, it's always one of those business lines that I thought maybe UPS and FedEx could start to ingrain themselves more with some of these D2C companies or just more in terms of the e-commerce business. Is that anything that you, from an investor, have a particular view on in terms of the potential for that in the future, whether it would be a positive or a negative, and how it might play out for FedEx? That one's interesting in the nuance of logistics in that the third-party logistics as a business is not something we love. It's hard. It's more commodity-ish, and it's very capital-intensive. You and I started out talking about the Memphis thing. This is one thing we see in Memphis with this over-the-top industrial warehouse market there. You still see all that activity because you can still be the partner to that logistics firm or to someone's own internal logistics department where... You can get embedded, you can hopefully drive even part of the IT networks into each other and make it even more efficient, but it is different than being that business. And they have tried it in the past and it just didn't work out that great. I think UPS has more of an affinity for it, has probably done a better job with it. But long-winded way to say logistics per se is something we don't really want to be in directly, even though, of course, you want to be the provider of choice. And it's a little bit that on forwarding, which is interesting, too, because for a long time, it was like you're fighting the forwarders as they use the underbelly of passenger jets and other people like that. Well, somewhere in there, FedEx is like, well, we can do that, too. We don't have to put everything on our own plane, especially if that doesn't make sense on a yield and return basis. 
So if you look at their category of purchase transportation, when that's not their own contractors over at ground, that's putting it on passenger underbellies and just picking the best route, having the luxury of being more agnostic if it's your plane or not. So I think that's the same dynamic logistics as being those as adjacencies. Amazing how intertwined the transportation and logistics space actually is in terms of how many of these big players work with one another or ship with one another or end up in some capacity having ingrained networks and how reliant everyone is on one another. To go back to your investor perspective, I think you referenced before in terms of where the business could go from $20 of earnings per share to 30 reference that against the stock price today. Is that how you would typically think about this business? Just looking at a price to earnings multiple, how else would you frame thinking about what is fair value for a business like FedEx and relative to whether it's the S&P or anything else in the market? There's several ways where really the most important to us would be, I guess the sell side would call this sum of parts. We just say whatever, that's just NAV basically. But in doing the segments, we would look at Express, as I mentioned, which is unbelievably not worth, its value has not grown a lot because these macro problems, but that one we'd be at more like, call it two thirds of revenues, basically. That's in line with DHL. That's in line with what we think will be the normal Express margins, even though, as I said, now they're only two. But that leads to a number, call that 30 billion-ish. And then the freight business is interesting in that we're probably a mid-teens EBITDA on that, which is way below Old Dominion, which is interesting. And that puts us at, call it $25 billion, even though Old Dominion has an EV, I think, over $40 billion, and it's a lot smaller. Never gets cheap, Old Dominion. <laughs> <laughs> I know. The returns are a thing of beauty. And then ground, of course, is the most important. And I think if you were doing a sum of parts, there'd be two ways to come at ground. I mean, one is our own longhand gives that a PE of a little more than 20. That is a duopoly. It's an incredible structure. They can keep gaining unit share, all the good stuff we've talked about. And that works out to 13 to 14 times EBITDA. And that seems to make sense. And if you do that, you would get 75 billion for ground. But the appraiser part of us says, you got to honor where UPS sells. And if you could get 15 or $20 billion less for that, if you just said, let's just slap the UPS metrics on it. Now, as an aside, I do feel like because of UPS's earnings momentum that you talked about in the labor deal, there are reasons to us why that for the first time is cheap. This is the first time in comparative values that we've thought it's not just saying put a UPS multiple on FedEx, it's also UPS itself is cheap. But anyway, tying that all together, if you do those numbers, you're talking about around 400 bucks a share. But anytime we do that, you do have to compare that to the straight up EPS number and what does that imply? And so... If we agree that mostly the earnings power there is going to be 30 bucks in a few years and you discount that back, that's in line with our 400. If you did just say straight up UPS comparison, although if you did that, you might have to do Old Dominion on the freight comparison. If you're going to start doing market peers, that would give you something more like 350 instead of 400, but that's still way above today's stock price. And I guess the last thing is, the sell side stuff that probably drives us most bananas about when it's value in this is the use of the word historical. Sometimes that makes all the sense in the world. The regression to the mean, the historical norm, that makes sense, of course. But when your business has completely changed, it just doesn't. So DHL shows the risks and the macro problems and all that of why that's of a low PE that we talked about. Express is just a tougher thing than it's ever been. But this is 20% express. 
it doesn't matter what the PE was 10 years ago. It was an express business. And now it's a U.S. trucking business. And so historical multiples, we throw them out the window because the company has radically changed its makeup. And again, we would get to some combo of UPS and Old Dominion as the right multiples, whether it's EBITDA earnings or revenues. And it's just going to be way above anything here. One last way to look at that is if you just said, take Express out of the equation, FedEx, which the consensus is almost exactly 20 bucks for the next 12, 15 of the 20 bucks is US trucks. So that alone on 250 is not crazy. I, another way to say this and value person parlance is like, I get Express for free. It may have challenges and headwinds and all that, but it's also got a 2% margin that can go back to seven once they get some of the stuff sorted out. The starting point in terms of where margin is today is very important. If you don't believe that it's going to go negative, then it certainly has one direction that's much more interesting and compelling when it comes to the value. I think your point in terms of the secular trend for a multiple is important. And I can specifically remember myself drawing some of those historical multiple charts, looking at something like UPS, where it was just Yes, there was cyclicality in terms of the chart, but it was really one long trend of multiple contraction. One subsector of transportation that we haven't brought up, which I still believe is seeing multiple expansion over the past two decades, has been the railroads. And it's one of these businesses where you step back and you would have said, well, Matt, look at railroads and what they have going for them in the economy. Everything's getting faster overnight. Doesn't seem like it's that great for railroads. You take something like FedEx and UPS, all of these tailwinds, yet the stock performance tells the real story. Is there anything that you think you could take away from the railroad performance, how they've managed those businesses, and apply it into FedEx in terms of what the next 10, 20 years could look like? That's a great question. And within that, I should have mentioned on these draft savings, some of this one FedEx is not just freight hauling for ground. It's putting a lot more on the rails. They talked about a lot that a lot at the whole analyst day where they talked about this drive program. So I'm very glad you brought that up. So one thing is it does become another avenue for FedEx to benefit from, not only worry about the competitive pricing on rail versus trucks. I feel like as somebody who's we've boy, we've blown it on not making money on rail. So I say this as a huge maker of mistakes on rail. It feels more like infrastructure to me. It's slower growth. It's got EBITDA margins that can only go so much further. But it gets this infrastructure multiple because it is. You can attach such a high terminal value to your DCF there that it spits out these huge multiples that, again, we screwed that up. We were still putting low growth multiples on it. And we missed it. But I don't think the trucking companies will get that, or at least we're not willing to use those multiples. And they will be somewhat tethered to each other. Like if we're doing risks for the case, if that gap gets crazy between rail and trucks. That just hurts the two companies, even though somewhat you can use the rail if you're FedEx, but they have been a just a steady performer. And interestingly, one of the directors that D.E. Shaw had put on when they got their activist settlement, for lack of a better word, was a legendary rail guy. He now had to go because he's got another job, but rail's definitely in the mix of the whole discussion. I think the way you phrased it there in terms of the terminal multiple is actually very interesting and very well said in terms of how important that is for rails and something that you certainly could see if there was some stabilization in the air freight market, whatever category we want to put FedEx and UPS into. But there's been so much disruption and 
unease over the past 15 years, but it certainly seems like something that could be in the long term. When you think about risks for FedEx, there's the obvious macro risks, there's integration risks, but what else do you think about most from the investor perspective as a risk for FedEx? I do think it's execution. That's another tried overuse phrase, but I really do. You don't see these major structural worries. So one part would be execution of all that they have on their plate. Another part would be, and you mentioned this earlier, they do have this labor cost advantage. Well, depending on who's going to be the government, that depends on labor posture and that depends on what rules change. And so you always have to wonder, could anything change about the regulatory that might change the comparative labor costs? That'd be another one. Amazon's so huge and important to our consumer world that just as a wild card, I don't even know how to articulate what exactly the risk would be. But if something they could do to screw up market structure, fuel's another one. If Again, even if you have a fuel charge, your product is still less compelling against whatever the competition is if it spikes. Between Ukraine, Middle East, whatever, what if oil goes crazy and then that's going to hurt? Those are all good risks that I think we either touched on lightly or didn't address at all to add into the pile. This has been an excellent conversation. The last question we always ask is around the lessons from studying a business that you think that you could potentially apply elsewhere. So whether it's Fred Smith specifically, FedEx the business over the decades that you've spent looking at it, what are lessons that you think FedEx can teach investors that they can use in terms of pattern recognition or something else when it comes to diligence? We've touched on some of them directly or indirectly, but I mean, a couple of them would include this long-term thinking and strategic adaptability. I mean, we talked about this as far as here's this famous, famous, famous thing on airplanes that is really about ground and trucks. That was just adapting. That was a brilliant person and team just adapting. I think that's one. And then related to that would be this long-term thinking, which we also mentioned just not regarding, I don't care what this is going to do the next quarter or earnings if we don't carry Amazon packages. Is that a good thing? And then as far as investor and my financial nerd self, it'd be the pricing power. We're always going to take our analysts through trying to be proficient and doing a Porter model and all that stuff. But if you try to dummy that down, it is about, and it just covers so many other problems. We've had all this volatility. We've talked about political crises and oil spikes and all this stuff. And they've still tripled their earnings in the last 10 years, and they'll probably double again soon. And if you say, wow, what carried the day? What won it? It's those annual price increases they put through because of this powerful market structure that wasn't an accident that gets back to the adaptable part and the long-term part. I love that. Market structure has been something that we've been thinking a lot about recently. And it's a theme that obviously we had discussed or looked at, but maybe hadn't paid enough attention to. And a lot of what's going on in the cable market is what's triggering that right now and thinking about how important it can really be for all of the different players in a given industry. So an excellent lesson to close on, some excellent stories and analysis here. Thank you so much for joining us as someone who has FedEx in their backyard. It goes a little further in terms of the conversation. So thanks so much, Daly. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you. Appreciate being on. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 